Welcome to the Reality Check Podcast. I'm Zachary Phillips. So today I've got a couple of blog posts that have been doing quite well. Both of these posts have received more than 10 comments and a bunch of likes and shares. And they're hitting close to home in the sense that they're, they're quite personal topics. Basically, when I'm writing a book, I tend to pull back on the blog posting because my mind's focused on whatever I'm writing in that book. But since I've just released Kink, um, I've got a bit of a break from book writing. So I'm going to be focusing on blog posts and on lucidity. So that's where I'm at at the moment. Anyway, the, the two blog posts that I'm going to talk about today, the first one's called The Impact of Neglect on Every Aspect of My Life and What Friendships Look Like When You Have a Mental Illness. Both of these topics sort of relate to the same concept. So like I said, they've, they've been quite well received. And if you want to read these uh, for yourself, you can do so in the links in the show notes. Um, and I'll also put a link to my blog there so you can check out all of the current writing that I'm doing whenever you find this podcast. So the first one, the impact of neglect on every aspect of my life. It is amazing how much I don't know about basic human functioning. Sure, I taught myself how to survive, but every time something new comes up, I freak out and break down. I have no basis upon which to draw from, just a gaping hole where a loving, caring childhood should be. My father was an addict and a dealer. I can count on my fingers the memories that don't involve him stoned, catatonic, on the couch his house a hoarder's squalor. I moved out of home at 16, living off charity and government handouts to get through school. I survived, but I've learnt something fundamental about my existence. That is, I don't know how. How to do what? How to do anything. Neglect is a specific form of abuse marked by absence. Little care, guidance, instruction or opportunities for modelling. Just a void where life should have been. I was left to comfort myself in a volatile environment, kept keep myself safe and sort out my food, hygiene and clothing needs. I was taught some stuff, but a lot of things had to be gleaned from unreliable sources. Television and peers became my instructors, and then the how-to sections in magazines and books. I got good at faking it until I made it, but I'm still working on the making it part. I could give endless examples of these neglect form deficiencies, but I feel the list would encompass most aspects of my life. From the practical, how do you shave? To the social, how do you make friends? To employment, how do you find and keep work that is at least tolerable? To the spiritual, what's the point of all this? I feel like there is no basis for me to begin that there's no scaffolding upon which I can start my journey into the world, and this terrifies me. I find myself in a constant state of anxiety, questioning everything that I think, questioning every innate response that I have. Is this the right thing to do? Or am I, or I've had to build it up on my own, and I had to build it upon quicksand. Where others had their parents guiding them, I had to work it out on my own. Where others could ask for help, I had to find that help on my own. Where others had positive options modelled to them, I had something to avoid becoming. It feels like I do not know what to do. But it feels like I don't know... 
It feels like I know what not to do, but not what to do. With everything, all the time. It's unsurprising then to know that I have anxiety. I struggle to know what to say or when to say it. I struggle to feel safe in environments. I fear the unknown. I hate ambiguity. Panic attacks are commonplace. I write this to make sense of my inner world, and I share it because I know that you may have had similar experiences to me, and thus may find some comfort from the knowledge that you are not alone. That said, I'm hyper-aware that this entire piece may come across as a nail elaborate, woe is me. But as described, I don't have a basis upon which to ground my self-expression in a socially acceptable format. Perhaps just Perhaps that is just the anxiety speaking again. I wanted this piece to explain the slipperiness of neglect. Trying to define its impact is like trying to pin down mercury, and overcoming it is harder still. It feels like battling a multi-headed hydra. I finally get comfortable in one part of my life, and then things change. I have slayed one head, only to discover that two more up to only to discover two more that up to this point I didn't know existed. I'm now the father of two young boys. They are my joy and purpose, but they are also the cause of many more Hydra heads. In attempting to teach them how to survive and thrive, I'm discovering just how little I know about life, or more specifically, just how little I was taught as a child myself. Once again, the physical how-to knowledge is just the tip of the iceberg. How do you organise a household? How much is too much television? The real issue comes when I attempt to aid them emotionally, socially and spiritually. It is hard to have confidence in my truth when my truths come as a response to neglect. What can I offer them when my experiences and mental states differ so significantly from theirs? The only solution in my mind is to seek professional help and read books that cater to people with my experiences. Here's some of the best that I've found. And as a side note, I'll put these in the show notes. These are some of the best books I've found. Running on Empty by Janoyce Webb. Mindsight by Daniel Siegel, The Highly Sensitive Person by Elaine Aron, and The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Those books are poor substitutes for a loving, caring, attention-filled and safe childhood, but at least they are a starting point. Beyond that, I found that connecting to people with similar pasts has been beneficial. We all don't know how in one area or another, and can therefore help Fill the gaps in each other's inner worlds. Point is, you are not alone. Maybe feeling this way at times, despite maybe feeling this way at times. (sighs) So that's the first piece. Even writing that, there's just so much more that neglect impacts my life. And it, it really is hard to pin down because it's like, it's trying to, to, to note an absence where, where overt trauma, sexual violence, uh, words, you know, bullying, all of that sort of stuff, it sort of adds something. Neglect is the taking away of something. Now, I'm not trying to say that my pain or someone else's pain is, is more or less or any of that sort of stuff, but the, the, the battle of describing neglect is in describing an absence, and that absence is sort of hard to to sort of come to, to to sort of express because it is a lacking. So 
and, and that lacking permeates every aspect of my life. I had this thought that from a neglectful perspective, it, it tends to produce non-secure or insecure attachments as a kid. So the idea is, is that, you know, if you have loving, caring, present, non-neglectful parents, you, you develop a secure attachment. And that basically means you see them as a stable, functional uh, place of safety. But if they're not ideal parents or there's not ideal circumstances, you develop an insecure attachment and you don't see your parents or your caregivers as that stable base. Now, flash forward to your teenage adult life, whatever. You now view the world and everyone in it through that same attachment uh, lens. So if you're securely attached, you will assume that most situations are positive and happy and, uh, you know, just sort of just calm, right? New people aren't a threat. Whereas if you had a neglectful, insecurely attached childhood, new situations, ambiguity all comes across as a threat, all comes across as potentially danger. And adding to that, you don't have sort of a quote unquote normal way to respond to it. This is all just my, you know, headcanon theory. And what I realized is, is that, you know, given the fact that I, I don't have that secure base to operate from, it's easy for me to, to assume the worst of people. And that causes me to pull back. And that combined with the lack of knowledge, you know, how do I interact with people? How do I do these bookings? How do I care for myself and my kids? And all this sort of stuff causes a lot of social withdrawal. And that sort of compounds this cycle across. It, it, it's quite a challenge and it's, it's, it's so hard. One of the things that I've been working on overcoming that is to just make an assumption that things are good until I see otherwise. It goes against what I naturally feel, but my natural inner voice is screaming at me saying, run, get out of here. This is dangerous. That person's going to wrong you. Uh, all of those sort of things. Whereas in the reality, time and time and time and time again, in my normal life, I've not had that bad stuff happen. I've felt fine. So, the reality of my current reality is one of safety, but my inner world screams that it's not. So, I'm trying to override that with a bit of logic, being like, hey, you know, yes, you feel that way, but perhaps if you look at your past, the reality is different. It doesn't always work, and, you know, I'm working on um, therapy, and I'm also looking into a physiological way to overcome this sort of response. Um, at the moment, I'm reading the book, Overcoming Trauma Through Yoga. The idea is, is that it's a way to fit being physiological responses to heal from trauma. So that should be a good one. And I'll put the link down below for that one as well. Anyway, on to the second blog post. What friendship looks like when you have a mental illness. What does friendship as an adult look like? Or more specifically, what does friendship as an adult look like when you have a mental illness? The answer, not like the movies. Not like you learnt in high school, and it isn't easy for either party. I'm not going to lie, I'm not a good friend. Not because I'm a bad person, or because I have bad intentions, but because my anxiety fundamentally stunts my ability to interact within what is considered the normal range for friendships. I find myself trapped in a cycle. I want to catch up. So I make plans to catch up. Then I worry about those plans until the time comes. Then I bail on those plans because my mental health has deteriorated. And then I want to catch up again. The knowledge of this cycle does little to stop it from occurring. Indeed, knowing that it will happen can even trigger it to happen. 
What's more, arranging to catch up with someone involves phone calls and other communication, which is in itself anxiety-inducing. There's also the issue of self-worth. Worth. To make those plans, I have to believe myself both worthy of company and interesting enough for them to want my company. The problem is that every time I bail, I prove to myself how not good at friends I am. Thus, it gets perpetually harder to ever catch up with someone. But let's just say that I do somehow manage to get past all of that and meet up with them. My mental illnesses are not done with me yet. I then must manage the the issues of real-time communication, complete with the ambiguities of tone, context, sarcasm, social distance, listening versus talking, topic choice, and being mindful of feelings. The challenge of processing all of that at once causes further losses in self-confidence, which is once again a downward cycle into what feels like, on my end at least, awkwardness. Compounding all of that are my issues with attachment and trust. I have a tendency to take things negatively or as an attack. I don't choose to do this, but due to a traumatic childhood, I've learnt I've learnt then the defence mechanism to always be on guard. To keep me safe. Terrible um terrible as an adult when I'm just trying to chat. I've taught myself to recognise these kind of negative assumptions and the other lies my brain is screaming at me. But that process takes time and effort that is needed to continue the conversation. The less I socialize, the less I practice practice socializing. For some people, it comes naturally, but for me, not so much. Thus, with extended breaks from catch-ups caused by mental health declines, or more recently lockdowns, I lacked the learnt experiences I once had. True, it quickly comes back, but that rusty period exacerbates my anxiety. The eventual result of my withdrawal is that my friends end up not inviting me anywhere anymore. They get used to me declining or getting disappointed or get disappointed with me bailing on the events. I get it. Who wouldn't get annoyed? Besides, they lose less than I do when I don't turn up. If there's a group of 10 people and one doesn't show, the remaining 9 people still get 90% of the connections. The person that doesn't show up loses 100%. Eventually, that one person, me, is no longer invited, and thus the group adds another person or accepts its reduced numbers and continues to do things together. At this stage, I don't know if I want to be invited or not. I get anxious regardless. How will I reject them again? What do I say? Maybe this time it will be okay. It's a mess. Still, it isn't all bad. I've learnt different ways to connect, ways that work within the limitations imposed by my mental illnesses. 1. Be open and honest. I've learnt to share what I struggle with and how it impacts my life. Now if I'm invited or make a friend, I'll let them know that I struggle with social anxiety, triggers, and other issues. Take time to explain to them what it means, as well as what it may cause me to do. Being forewarned, they're less likely to be offended or put out when I bail or seem awkward socially. 2. Choose appropriate options. When arranging to catch up, I will lean into activities that are more suited to my mental state and disposition. A walk in the forest is far more inviting than a nightclub. A casual game of sport is, is more fun than shopping. Eating outside is better than inside. I could go on, but the point is that now I choose what works best for me, or I consider their, how their suggestions would make me feel based on what I know about myself. 3. Don't commit. Whenever I'm invited somewhere, I take the time to process the request before I commit or reject it. That way I'm not running from fear or accepting out of obligation. 
but instead making choices based on what I want, need, and are capable of in that moment. My current go-to response is, I'm not sure right now, let me get back to you. 4. Socialize online. Talking over text or with voice messages takes a lot of the stress out of real-time conversations. It gives me the time to think about what I want to say and how I want to say it. 5. Choose activities that are not dependent on my attendance. I practice martial arts and there are a lot of nice people where I train. I can choose to go or not go depending on my mental state that day and the class still runs. The good part is, is that if I bail, no one is let down. We are all going there to train first and socialize second. If I come or not, they still have the same experience. And six, reframing what friendship is and means. What I used to consider a friend and an enjoyable social experience has and will continue to change. What worked for me as a teen and a young adult are not applicable anymore. I'm now a father of two and responsible for providing the financial support for the family. My interests have changed along with my goals and mental health. All those changes need to be reflected in my social life, of course. It is hard to make friends if I... Sorry, of course, it is hard to make friends if I view friendship through the lens of my past self. To be clear, I'm not always this bad. Some days, weeks, or even months look completely different, and I feel and act normal. Unfortunately, nothing lasts. And when I come back down again, the fall is more painful. So now, even when I am in a good place, I make sure to remind myself that in the future I may not be feeling so good. I don't let that knowledge stop me, but I do let it remind me of the importance of continued open and honest discussions and communication. A few deep and significant relationships have been formed whilst I was on and up, only to be destroyed because I didn't ex- effectively communicate how bad I can get before it happened. To them, I withdrew and changed my personality entirely, but in reality, I was suffering. A, at the time untreated, mental breakdown. I hold no ill will towards these people. It was and is on me to communicate effectively. I'm just saddened by the loss of potential friends and now vow to not let it happen again. These conversations are always embarrassing and awkward for me, but compared to the pain of loneliness, they're nothing. So that's the second blog post. Um, (laughs) Obviously, the the, the topics are fairly um, personal and confronting and I just know that given my responses online, um, a lot of people uh, can certainly relate to those feelings. Uh, so if you can, please, please do reach out and connect with me. Um, share it widely, all of that good stuff, because you're not alone. You know, I, I get it. I had um, a comment about that second one talking about the idea that they, the person commenting loved the piece, but suggested that they didn't believe that it's all on them. And this is a contentious point. In an ideal world, everyone would be able to see um, mental illness and the impact and would act appropriately and accordingly. But unfortunately, mental illness is invisible. And then the invisible nature of mental illness causes it to go under the radar and to be unknown. Now, that, you know, like, like, that means that it's not immediately obvious to those around us. If you're having a trigger, if you're feeling anxious and depressed, 
the people around you may not realize it, even though you might be screaming inside, even though you might be struggling, even though you might be on the verge of self-harm or worse. It might not be obvious to other people. So in my mind, I've, I've come to the realization that it's, it's on me to speak up. It's on me to get the help I need. It's on me to do the therapy, to do the work, because no one else can do it for me. Now, if I express myself and say, hey, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I need, and the person chooses to ignore that or not take it seriously, that's a different issue. But I have to assume that they don't see the suffering I'm going through because the illness is invisible. You know, if, if, if someone's in a wheelchair or has a broken leg, it's, it's fairly obvious what they can and can't do because it's visible. We can see the information with our eyes. But if someone's presenting, quote unquote, normally, it's not easy, if not impossible, to see what they need or what they're going through. So unfortunately, it is on them. And, and I've taken this a step further in terms of healing from traumatic experiences. It is unlikely that your abuser will come and help you. It's unlikely they will apologize. It's unlikely that they will even acknowledge it. This sucks. It's a terrible experience. It's happened to me. I've had people, uh, you know, put the blame back on me, people that have done stuff. Um, <laughs> and it's, 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 it's an atrocity. But what it taught me was that uh, regardless of all that, it is still on me to heal, to grow, to, to, to work through all of the drama that is going on in my life. If I got pushed down into glass, I'm not going to wait for the person to push me down to, to help me back up. I will get back up myself. Quite quite a, it's, it is awkward. I get that. And it's not ideal. And you didn't ask for it and all of that sort of stuff. And this is in no way victim blaming or shaming or anything like that. It's more me acknowledging the reality of recovery. If I was to wait for the people to help me, in the way that I needed help and need help now, I'll be waiting forever. And whilst it might be more just and right for them to help me, if I want to get better, if I want to live the rest of my life, what the rest of my life that I've got now, I need to do the actions myself, not wait for them. Because chances are it won't happen. Or if it does happen, it won't happen to the extent that I need it to. So... <laughs> it's there's a lot of nuance there and I'm happy to have that debate with anyone that likes it and sort of, you know, feel free to change my mind. I'm just quite practical in the idea that's like, well, yeah, I want to get better and healing needs to come from within and that's unfortunate. Anyway. So if you like those two blog posts, I'll put a link to uh, my blog feed in the show notes of this, of this post and there you'll be able to find the two pieces and from there you'll see the links to the books and all of that stuff. Um, I'm going to be writing a bunch more longer form blog posts like these ones. I've already got another three um, in the editing phase ready to go. So if you like this, follow my blog, check me out, stay updated, follow me on social media at Zach P. Phillips and I'll be posting my stuff regularly. I post a lot, obviously, but yeah, stay up to date and connect. Anyway, cheers.